Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's another conversation with Agility by Nature, me and Gil. Um, very much looking forward to today's guest. By his own admission, he calls himself a big mouth. I think he's being a bit modest, actually. Uh, but actually, I look through, and what we have got on our hands today is somebody who can code, somebody who contributes, someone who can train. He's an author of books. I don't know anybody who's as active on so many fronts as today's guest. It is the wonderful Alan Kelly. Hello, Helen. How are you? Hello, Ian. Uh, I'm doing as well as can be expected on day one of a, uh, a tier four, not a lockdown. <laughs> Another tier four. I must admit, I looked in the mirror and I thought, that haircut is not coming anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my sleek locks have sort of becoming a bit bushy and unmanageable. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the daughter's a little bit wide. I might say, could you get the trimmers out and do the haircut? I think she wants to take that responsibility. Um, I did say uh, you, you got 20 years. One of the things I noticed right early doors, I mean, obviously you've got your degree, you did the MBA, but uh, I love this one. You're a shepherd. Yes. You're a shepherd of PLOP. Tell me about shepherding. <laughs> I thought, at first of all, I thought, I thought, he's not really, is he? He's a kind of shepherd. <laughs> well, I, if, you'd, if you'd asked me a few years ago, I could have got out my shepherding staff <laughs> and my, my, my cowbells and even my um, gourd. Uh, there was a year where I, I had them. I actually won a shepherding award. And uh, the award was, was a, a staff, a genuine shepherd staff, oh. a cowbells and a gourd. Um, so if I use the word pattern i imagine most of your readers will think of a rather famous book from the 1990s with 22 patterns in it yes um i i will i i know some people think there's 23 patterns in there but i always instruct people to turn to the page of singleton on and rip those pages out <laughs> yeah you know, just find singleton pattern and remove it so you know my my um my role model here is dead poet society you know, yeah, rip yeah. out those pages. Um, so no, m most most coders, anyone who's been near coders, come across software patterns. Yes. And um, I say there's a famous book, and that's where most people start and stop with patterns. A number of people look a bit further and they discover there's a lot of patterns book. And in fact, regularly in the uh, top ten of ad of um, Amazon books. Yeah. There's um, two other pattern books there, both of which were authored by Frank Bushman, a friend of mine. And actually, patterns are still a really lively community. And um, they hold two or three conferences every year, and people write patterns. And if you want to grow, I can't recommend pattern conferences highly enough. You go there. There's no keynotes. There's no Actually, there is in the US ones now. Yeah. In the European ones, there's no keynotes. There's no speakers. There may be celebrities there, but they're there on the same terms as you and I. Yeah, yeah. And most of the people there have written a pattern. And the conference exists to help them improve the pattern. Uh -huh. And so you, you, you go to the pattern and you're assigned to a, a group, you and some other authors, and maybe a few people who are there have interest to observe. And in that group, you get to read other people's patterns. Well, hopefully you've read the patterns in advance. You get to comment on other people's work. Yeah. And they're not allowed to respond. They have to sit silently while other people discuss their writing and their work. Alan, how can you cope with that? I will tell you the first conference I went to, 
and I had this pattern. And what before you go to the conference, this is where shepherding comes in. You get shepherded. Somebody is assigned to you for three oh. months before the conference. Oh. Somebody works with you to help you improve your paper. And I'd done this with the wonderful Frank Bushman. And I had this paper. And my first patterns conference, they took me as the first author in my first workshop ever. And for 10 or 15 minutes, I am in heaven. They are talking about the things they like about the pattern, what they like. And they're saying things like, I, I recognize this pattern. It's genuinely useful. I can see how it will benefit programmers and all the rest. Of it. And the way we do it in the conference, we have a lot of safety mechanisms in there. We have a structured way of doing things. So after about 10 or 15 minutes, the moderator of the group says, okay, now, now should we move on to um, suggestions for improvement for the pattern? <laughs> oh my God. I felt like that was where the knives came out. And for the next 40 minutes, knife after knife went in. And I was writing frantically, as I always do when my patterns are there. I'm making copious notes. And I really didn't know what to make of it. Yeah, yeah. It was only afterwards I went through all the feedback and I, I processed it and I thought it through. It's, of course, it's not inconsistent. What one person says change, the other person says they love. And what one person says change this way, somebody else says change it the opposite way. You know, and that old saying, that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will admit I was a bit crushed coming out of that meeting, right. that, that workshop. But you know what? I incorporated the feedback. The pattern got stronger and the pattern ended up in the, the, a book called Pattern Languages of Program Design, Volume 5. Wow. It's a really serious book. It's a really serious pattern. And the, the conference has other mechanisms built into it. We, we have a games facilitator. And these people who sometimes you feel as though they're attacking you, they're not attacking you, they're attacking your work. And you really understand that when you're playing games with people and you're stage diving with them. Yeah, <laughs> I know. honestly, we, yeah, we just yeah. take and, and, and the other kind of cooperative games. And, you know, what we'd now call psychological safety, we build that into the conference. As a writer, it was an amazing experience. And for over 10 years, I would return every year to this conference in Germany. So I, if you want to be a writer, if you want to get serious about stuff, I recommend you go to the conference. There's also um, your conference fee also includes a free bar. So there might be other reasons for going. I, I like that sort of incentive. <laughs> so uh, well, that's a good one, because I think you're the first person who's actually talked about patterns. I mean, we talk about IT and digital and, 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 and teamwork and all sorts of things. But actually, that sounds like one, if you are a coder, a software engineer who wants to get better and better, that should be on their roster of things I must do. Or, or yes, I, I, can't, I can't recommend it highly enough. You know, there's, there's so much in patterns. People stop at that famous book. Yeah. And there's so much more depth. And I remember that the patterns community was where Agile started. Yeah. You look at the names of the original people, yeah. you know, like, like Jim Copeland and, and um, Kent Beck and others. They met at patterns conferences. Martin Fowler was at the early pattern conferences. And it was, they were the, that was the forum where they started talking about these ideas that went on to be called Agile. Yeah, yeah. Object orientation gave came onto patterns and patterns came onto agile and now agile is built into digital. You know, it, it be, they beget cycles. So. Well, I, well, tip number one, thank you very much. And, and, and are these now being held remotely? 
They they did this year hold um, the conference remotely, and uh, there's usually one in Germany just outside Munich every July, and one in the US um, about October. And for 2020, they did go remote. Yep. Um, they are hoping that 2021 they can hold it again back in Bavaria, but they are preparing a backup plan. Ooh, okay. And did I see a Viking one as well? There was a Viking plop for a few years. It comes and it goes, Viking plop, and it tend it's um it moves around. So it completed a circuit of uh, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, and then it was shallow for a couple of years. Then it did uh, Denmark and Finland again, I think, and then went to the Baltics, and then they had to join to Sofia. <laughs> <laughs> It shows you how extensive the Agile community is. Oh, it's yeah. And it is. And many of the people in the patterns community are still still very involved with the Agile community. And I, I feel as I've got lifelong friendships there. Yeah. And I've had such deep conversations. I'll tell you what, one, one person I know, Lisa Huftum, and she's Norwegian, but she lives in Texas. And I got to know through the patterns conferences. And we both discovered Conway's Law. Right. And so back in 2005, 2006, we did a workshop at Europlop, the conference, to, um, to talk about Conway's Law. And we wrote um, a large paper, 10, 12 pages about Conway's Law. Wow. We thought it was pretty cool. And we left it there. When the continuous digital, continuous development um, delivery community, well, continuous delivery, okay, right? they started to kick off and they rediscovered Conway Law and they rediscovered our paper. I, I started to get invited to continuous delivery meetups. I was a bit of a celebrity in, in the community because we'd gone over all this work. And, and, and actually, you know, people can go to your website uh, and, and I'll put the link at the bottom and I'll put all the, the, the references there. I mean, you've still got your blog, you're still prolific emailer. You, uh, uh, and of course, uh, Agile on the Beach. Uh, yes. Uh, what a lot of fun that is. Do you think do, do you think we'll be beach buddies again this year? Uh, yeah, Agile on the Beach. I th some people by the time this podcast goes out, it should be public knowledge. Ah. Um, but it's already being circulated to the speakers. We are aiming for September, cool. which was the original yeah. slot that Agile on the Beach was in. We moved to July and it's been great in July. We thought we'll give ourselves an extra couple of months runway to make sure the world is safe. Yeah. And we'll aim for September. Yeah. Uh, we are hoping to have largely the lineup we planned for 2020. There'll be some modifications inevitably. We are hoping to have all the features and everything as usual. We all want to more than anything else. We just need that party on the beach to blow off steam. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, I'm, I'm going to get my Hawaiian shirt freshly pressed up. Now, I can tell you. <laughs> but yeah, you, you have been busy and you, you've written a lot of stuff. But you've written a lot of books. Too much. Yeah. <laughs> Well, actually, you and I were talking, and I think we started talking about user stories. I said, mm. and I think you made the, the quick, how can anybody write so much about user stories? <laughs> and you went, oh, actually, I fell into that trap too. So you, you, your little book of requirements and user stories, did it start as a little modest into your blog and then blew up into a, a full book? Yeah, yeah it, it started as a, um, a way to spend several hours on a flight to Dallas. <laughs> I, I, I found myself giving the same advice about user stories again and again. Yeah. yeah. And I kept thinking there's, there's, there's nothing to them. It's who, what, why? Yeah. yeah. I found myself giving the same advice and I kept saying, 
I'll write this down one day. And so I can just give this to people. Here's my advice. And I thought, you know, it's a few thousand words, 5,000 words tops. And one day I was flying out to a client in the US. I thought, okay, 10 hours on a plane, no Wi-Fi, yes! Uh, I'm going to write it down. And then I'll watch a film and I'll, you know, we, we took off from Heathrow and I got my laptop out. I started typing. We were coming into land in Dallas before I stopped. And I think I'd written, I'd written like 25,000 words or something stupid. And at which point, I thought, well, what do I, takes too much to, too much to be one journal article. At the time, Joanna Rothman uh, was editing an online journal called Agile Connection. And um, she, I, I said, look, if I refactor this into a series of articles, will you take it? And, and, and she kind of said, is the Pope Catholic? Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, she bit my hand off. And so uh, for, there's about 12 or 13 articles on Agile Connection. You can go and look them up and download them for free. And about that time, I'd been introduced to LeanPub. And, and LeanPub, I, I don't know how many of you come across LeanPub, but I can't recommend it highly enough. It is... For me, it is the epitome of the digital world we now live in, that I can write a book and I can sell a book before it's finished. And you as a buyer, you get the updates when I send it out to you. And because of that, I can get your feedback in dollars. (laughs) And and let's be honest here, money is feedback. And it has the kind of satisfaction that, that other feedback doesn't necessarily give you. It may only buy a pint in the pub, yeah, yeah. but it, it, it tells you somebody's somebody's values this and they're prepared to trade them having a pint for you having a pint. And as you change the book and you update it, you'll really get the updates. You add to it, you change it. And I'm just finishing off another one now and, and some people have got it. And LeanPub is, is great the way it changes the model. And because I keep copyright, my options are really open on it. Yeah. But anyway... I remanufactured these. So I wrote all this stuff on a flight. I remanufactured them into 12 articles. I remanufactured them again and put them together in a book. And to my surprise, given that you know, 80% of the context for the book is free to download from somebody else's website, that's my biggest seller. Seriously. Um, in, in some ways, it's a bit of a disappointment in that most of my books are my manifesto for changing the world yeah. they, they all contain some some you know germ of an idea that book is like 15 tips for writing better user stories yeah yeah but that's what sells and in fact for a while i've been doing um training courses for business analysts and then more genuine about user yeah. stories yeah. and the user story stuff was based around that book those ideas and during lockdown, one of the things that came out of lockdown for me was I started running half-day workshops, additionally as an experiment. Yeah. And again, it's, it's the book material. And I, I've partnered up with a guy called Paul Beckett, who runs a company called Edinburgh Agile. Oh. And we, we've now put a package together based around the book and my workshops. And we're selling this as an online workshop. And we've actually got companies lining up to have these workshops for their staff. We, we just ran two of them for building society. Is it, and this is specifically around user stories? Yeah, user stories. And many ways, user stories, it, it opens the door to a whole number of other issues. Uh-huh. I think what it is, is um, business analysts and product owners, they have a specific problem in writing. Well, problem's the wrong word, but you know, I mean, there's a specific need to write better user stories. Yeah. 
and we can talk about these issues. We can talk about what makes a good story, what makes a bad story. And, but it also opens the door to so many other things about the way they're organizing themselves. Mm. Like one, one of my standard lines with user stories is um, if you have the conversation, because you remember user stories are a placeholder for a conversation. If you have the conversation, all sins are forgiven. Right. You can write the worst, smelliest, crummiest user story in the world. And if you have a conversation with the developer and maybe with the tester, and you talk about what is wanted, and you listen to them and you co-create, all sins are forgiven. And mm. um, But simply having, you know, Bringing that to the fore, and the way the way the workshop works is, we look at some actual user stories I've I've gathered over the years. Uh-huh. Some of them are awful. <laughs> Share us an awful with us an awful uh, user story from your, uh, your dark, awful, from your dark memories. Uh, there's this one which is, um, as as a tester, I want at least two images in portrait and landscape mode, so I will have something to test. Oh. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Reads like a government make work scheme, doesn't it? <laughs> Give me some... thinking exactly that. <laughs> That's a make work story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you'd be surprised people have stories like this and, and people have problems slicing them and you get into questions about who's writing them, who is the who, how teams are organized. You know, we talk about vertical stories that deliver benefit. And people say, but, you know, my user stories, there's a bit developed by that team over there and another bit done by that team over there. And we opened it on so many issues. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that the book's still selling and people are still coming to the courses, is that because it's such a hard thing to master and even practice, practitioners, for want of a better word, want to tune up and get the best insight? Or are we seeing more people coming in and, and starting their journey? Or is it a bit of both? I, I can't, I honestly don't know. It's hard to tell because I, I think you, you probably live in a similar bubble to me, Ian. Yeah. I don't mean our, our social bubbles. <laughs> I mean, an agile bubble. Yeah. Like people occasionally say to me, how many people are doing agile? Has everyone cut across? How many people are left in waterfall? Yeah. And I honestly don't know. Cause the only people I speak to, or the vast majority of people I speak to, are um, people who are trying to do agile. I've got yeah. no idea who's, who's left out there. Yeah. Um, I would observe, though, that agile is the way you do modern, not just software development, but anything technological. I've moved beyond this belief that Agile is the way software developers work. For me, Agile is the business or is the process, the way of working that accompanies digital working. And digital working, digital businesses occur when you are inherently dependent on technology which if you weren't dependent on technology before March, you almost certainly are now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while some businesses don't have a lot of technology, more and more businesses, even your local coffee shop, they've got a loyalty scheme. They aren't, they aren't taking cash in payments. The Wi-Fi is important. They've probably got a mailing list. Digital technology underpins growth businesses. And in the digital world, nobody writes a specification ask for six months time for you to deliver it. Okay, okay. I take that back. I recently came across one organization that does exactly that. Uh, their client thinks they're doing a digital transformation. You want, it, they're utterly flawed, but in a digital environment, the way you work, we call 
agile. Yeah. Yeah. Agile came out of software development because software developers were the people who had first access to email, instant messenger, voice over IP, wikis, all the tools that underpin digital working that most people are using when they're working from home for the last six months. Software developers had them years before anyone else. Software developers are great problem solvers. Software developers found new ways of working. When you move to digital technology, you don't just do things faster. You need new ways of working. Yeah. And that is called agile. So business is in the process, and it's been accelerated in the last six months. Business is in the process of digitizing. And when you work digitally, you get a maximum benefit from digitization. You want to work in an agile fashion. So more and more people who are software developers and not software developers are adopting agile working. And because modern business is digital, there are just so many more software developers and like similar people in the world that the pie is growing. The number of software people is growing. There may well be more people working in a waterfall fashion today than there's ever been before. But in addition, there's an awful lot more people working agile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think this the, the demand for agile and, and user stories and all that is, is it's just a growing market, you know? Absolutely. Uh, do you think, um, you know, the, the pandemic has stimulated a lot of digital activity, but I wonder how it's really worked. I mean, obviously, we've had the, oh, my God, we've got to get people working from home. So they've organized, they've dealt with their firewalls, they've dealt with, they've got Zoom, they've done some training, goodness knows. Uh, and they've sort of gone, oh, right, we've cracked it. Or we might need an app. We might need an app. Yeah. Because people are buying online. And, and But do you think there's sort of two camps now? There are those who are sort of resting on there, we've cracked it. And then there's those saying, oh God, now we really need to understand new problems of our customers. And we've now really got to go much more digital. Yeah, I mean, broadly, yeah, I agree with you. I think there's an awful lot of people out there who have superficially gone digital. They're using Zoom. Maybe they're using a little bit of Slack. But fundamentally, they're still trying to work the way they were six months ago. Or actually, no, hang on. No, it's it's December now, isn't it? Okay. Uh, (laughs) Ten months ago. (laughs) (laughs) That guy goes on. We've lost track of time. Yeah. I think fundamentally, there's an awful lot of organizations where the, um, for example, the managers are running themselves ragged and they're still trying to check up on people. They're still trying to see what people are doing. They're still... They still almost want people to clock onto their machines in the morning and clock off in the afternoon, as it were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things that comes with digital and agile is you've got to get a lot more outcome focused or as another podcast I was listening to the day put it, results orientated. Yes. It's no longer about did Bill clock 40 hours and do good work during the week, but did they produce something? I feel like, you know, it, in our stand-up meetings, we the question should be, what have you achieved since yesterday? Yeah. But we accept, and I understand why we accept it, it's what have you done? Yeah. But we really do wonder what do you achieve. Mm-hmm. And, and in this remote environment, digital generally, we want people to be thinking about achieving things and doing things and outcomes and results and not, not justifying 40 hours on the clock. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I think to go back to your question, I think a lot of organizations haven't made that shift yet yeah. 
I think an awful lot of the th organizations have made, that are still in that mode, where as we, as we move back to some kind of normal, whether that's a return to our old normal or the new, new normal, whatever we're calling it, <laughs> they're going to find they're flawed below the water because organizations which have grasped it are going to be able to outsmart them. Yeah, yeah. For example, take take the conference industry. You know, both of us go to conferences, and Rudy mentioned some of the ones I go to. I think physical conferences are still brilliant. Yeah, and we we talked about this for Agile on the Beach. We we don't see how we can replace Agile on the Beach with an online conference. Yeah. However, a lot of conferences have moved online, and people are doing stuff online, and we are doing things online. Which 10 months ago, we, we, we thought we couldn't do. I'm doing stuff online which 10 months ago I thought I couldn't do. Yeah. Coming out of this, I think what we'll find is the conference market has grown during the 10 months. We mm. still have a desire to go to physical, physical conferences. Yeah. And in future, physical conferences may even demand a higher premium. But a lot of our needs can be served digitally. A lot of our needs can be served online. The overall pie will grow. There'll still be a premium segment. But for organizations to provide those conferences, some of them will be able to survive in the premium space. Yeah. I, I hope Ags on the Beach is one of them. Yeah, yeah. Some of them have got to adapt to the online space and they can sell more to more people, but at a lower price yeah. in the commodity online space. Yeah. But to do that, you've got to make changes to your organization. Yeah. If you're a traditional company, your traditional conference organizer, for example, if you're not embracing, if you're not looking at what's happening in the lower segment, potentially they're going to steal your, your, your lunch. Yeah. There may still be a premium segment, but um, your premium segment, the segment you're in may not be the premium one. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, absolutely. And presumably digital is interesting here because Agile and Beach kind of helps if you're close to that beach. Now, um, you can put your conference in a Brazilian beach and also people in South Africa can come and talk to you about South Africa Agile and everybody can go to that. So, you must have seen my tweet the other week. I put a tweet out saying, now we can have conferences anywhere. Where, where should we have one? Should we have one on the moon? <laughs> Agile on the moon 2021. Well, that's, that's, that's absolutely right, though, isn't it? You can have it on the moon or you can have it in my, in my bathroom. I mean, you know, you go big and small and just like, just like that. I wouldn't recommend my bathroom, but, you know, um, you, you get the gist of it. Um, but is that really digital? I mean, we talked, you mentioned the word digital a lot. And I yeah. think this now at last, instead of we talk about projects and product and all of that, argument that's been broiling away, are we just now, we really recognise digital? Yeah. Well, okay. I, be, before I say yes, too whole, too enthusiastically, I, I suspect some of your listeners are already tuning out. And when I when I embrace digital in a moment, even more we'll tune out because I think for so many of us in in you come from a technology background, what we used to call IT. Yes. I think we do not appreciate the meaning of the word digital. And I agree, it's the dictionary definition is something different, but yep. you know. As technologists, you know, those analog computers never caught on. No. Yeah. Uh, I think there's one in the science museum, but it never caught on. No, seriously, there were analog computers. In the Second World War, they had artillery analog computers. For most of us, 
we've always lived in this digital world. My ZX81, all those years ago, I guess, was a digital machine. And I spent, until a couple of years ago, every time someone used the word digital, I was like, I just kind of ignored the word because it's obvious the computers are digital. Tell me something I don't know. Yeah, yeah. What I came to realize is when, although it, it's, it's totally normal for you and me and most of your listeners, for people from outside of the technology background, when they use the word digital, what they're saying is their world now looks like our world. They are now living in a world where everything is nominally soft, but may still be hard to change. Yeah. They are living in a world where you can go back to yesterday with a Git reversal, a Git checkout. They are living in a world where everything appears on screens. Somebody, um, I, I forget my name, pointed out, I forget her name, somebody in Sweden pointed out to me that you can almost, when you hear the word digital or digitization, you can substitute the word softwareization. It's about taking whatever it was and, in, and embedding it in software and the software changes it. Yeah, yeah. When you start to think of it like that, that, you know, marketing's the most obvious one. How, how has marketing changed in the last 10, 15 years? It's no longer about billboards and television ads. It's yeah. about Twitter and Facebook and um, YouTube and, and industry after industry is being changed because things are now, digital and you can check them out source code controlling you can update them and going back to what i said about lean pub and the fact that i can write this book and i can give you every update because it's a digital book because you're reading on your kindle your ipad because the cost of giving you an extra copy is zero yeah 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 it now becomes viable for me to do that for you to buy it off me and you to get updates yeah. if you try to do that with a physical book well, well hang on there's the typesetting process you need to typeset okay well the machines could typeset it but still i'd need to post it out to you the costs go up yeah. and because the costs go up you don't want to typeset and you don't want to do a print run although you can do, do print on demand it's more expensive per book and if you're not going to do that you've got other batch processes like copy editing you, yeah. you you don't when you digitize things so many of those can, I mean, copy editing is still a problem, but typesetting goes away. Typesetting, you can, lean pubs just, it's Apple style. They've removed lots of the options. Typesetting is trivial because it isn't there. <laughs> uh, but you can do that. And it now becomes economical to give you one yeah. again and again. And remember, most of human existence, the main problem has been creating more resources, creating things again. The 20th century was uh, a century of industrialization and Henry Ford and a million Model Ts looked the same. In technology, we've cracked that problem. Control yeah. C, control V. Yeah. You now have an identical copy of the thing you wanted and the cost of measuring how much it costs to create that is greater than the cost of creating it. Yeah, yeah. The time it takes you to control C, control V, the electricity, even the disk storage, add it all together. Yeah, yeah. It's negligible. Yeah. When you digitize things, the costs fall. So online publishing, LeanPub, is completely changes it. The conference scene is changing. Newspapers are changing. You know, training is changing in all sorts of ways. Once you make that duplication trivially cheap, the world changes. And we in technology, we overlook this. 
we don't, because we're so used to this, we overlook the significance of what digitization is happening. And that means that, you know, things like you, the, the management models, the processes we use, the way we think needs to change. You know, the example I often use at conferences is electricity. Yeah. You know, electricity entered the mainstream about this about 100 years ago. You know, we, we had electricity in the you know, time of Queen Victoria, but it wasn't generally available. It wasn't, you couldn't plug stuff in and get it. That only came about between the wars, really. And at first, factories didn't exploit electricity because factories were built, you know, uh, in Victorian times and even into the 20th century. And they were built to use energy or power, which came from a bar, a bus bar that ran through the factory. And you connected your machines to this by a belt. And the, the thing was powered by a steam engine or even a water wheel outside. Yeah. And so your factories had to be long and thin because this bar ran down your factory and all the machines had to run at the same speed because they were all driven off the same bar. And you know, the implications are massive. You, know, you go, go and look at pictures of, of Ford's uh, Rouge plant in the US. It's long and it's thin. Yeah, yeah. When you get electricity, you can start to change things and you can start to get hand tools. Yeah. And not only can you start thinking about it, at first you just do the same thing faster. That always happens to technology. You do the old thing faster. But with time, you can start to think about the way you work, the methods you're using. You've got hand tools. You don't need those big machines. You can run machines at different speeds because they're not driven off the one belt. You can distribute things. You don't need a long, thin factory anymore. You know, and if you look at the economics behind this, it took, you know, what, 50 years or more between electricity being introduced into factories at the turn of the 20th century and then getting the full benefits. You know, you're looking at the 1950s, 1960s. Arguably, the reason why lean happened in Japan was because in Japan, their factories had been conveniently destroyed in 1945. Yeah. So when Japan rebuilt its industry base, they were rebuilding with electricity and they could go from that higher base. Whereas the US and Europe, or at least in the UK, if not in Germany, we still had to work with our legacy. Yeah. So much of the legacy was removed in Japan and they invented something different. Yeah. But the economics is quite clear. It took decades for the productive benefits of electricity to come through. The same happened with information technology in the 1970s and 1980s. It was only as we got into the 21st century, we saw those benefits. Yeah. We're now going through the same thing with digitization. We are spending a lot of money on tooling up for this, but until we change our processes and our ways of working, our ways of thinking, our ways of managing, we aren't exploiting the full benefits. I agree. It's, it's interesting because I hear, when I hear the word digital, I usually think of um, like convenience. Um, I'm thinking cheap, accessible, super convenient. Um, but I often think, personal so a good example of that would be my iphone i pay for some goods by the scan click clunk don't touch nothing don't touch anything don't touch cash and i think right that's solved problems liking that i'll have tons of that please and that's just reshaped the way and i was always a man with cash always never went out without cash now cash is a pain in the what's it don't want to get involved with that um i just want to scan and go frankly and that's the end of it and I'm seeing that replicated in so many different areas. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, then, and your book is exactly the same. You know, removing costs to writing your own book, being your own publisher, because the barriers are down. But what I really like is the intimate relationship you're having with the readers. Yes. Evolving as you go along. You could never do that with, you know, um, a, a Tom Holt book or a Carl Hassan book or, or, or all the ones that I'm looking at now, actually. Um, <laughs> Although I should imagine 15 people talking to, um, you know, uh, uh, William Boyd about his latest book would probably kill you. <laughs> yeah. But that's, that, that one-on-one thing I think is very interesting. What about the larger organisations? We're seeing some of these large, I mean, we've seen some large organisations who just failed and, mm-hmm. and have gone to the wayside. Banks classically are going through that change. What is it? They seem to resist the change. And we, I often hear in Agile, it's about the people. It's about the people, you know, it's always about the people. It's the people problem. But then you've got these systems that seem to wrap around people that just stops them behaving in a way that you and I would recognise as, well, why are you doing that? Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. We, 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 are, we are people in our environments we are constrained, you know, we can't always do what we want. You know, I, I think, um, I, I love to think of the President of the United States, you know, and they are constrained by the Constitution, they're constrained by the House of Congress, they're constrained by the Supreme Court, and with, with Trump, thank God he was constrained. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, with Obama, it was, oh God, the poor guy couldn't do half the good yeah. things he wanted to do done. You know, you know, why can't the US just ban guns, you know, to the rest of the world, it's obvious, but, you know, they are constrained and even the most powerful man in the world, the powerful person in the world, who unfortunately is always a man, of course, yeah, uh, and they are constrained and that is good and it's bad. And, you know, although we talk about it's always a people problem and, you know, there's the famous Jerry Weinberg quote, it's always a people problem. And to some degree you can say, yeah, it is always a people problem because at the end of the day, somebody made the rules and somebody enforces it. We are captive to what came before. We are captive to our systems. And that there's an old um, John Maynard Keynes, one of my favorite subjects is economics outside of. Uh, but John Maynard Keynes said, um, there, is, there is no businessman or politician alive today who is not prisoner to some long dead economist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so often it's, it's sometimes it's obvious, it's the processes, it's the rules are made to ourselves. Sometimes it's just the mindset. Yeah. yeah, I think that there's a lot of that going on with the, the project mindset, but we are constrained. So yes, it's always a people problem. And I suppose the CEO could just remove those rules, but it's, it's, we like our rules, don't we? We like, we like our context. Yeah. And so many of those big organizations, they, they have more of those rules. They have more of that legacy, where even if the rules are informal, you know, they're cultural or yeah. whatever. And, getting people to change like that now that's good and that's bad it's good that you know it constrains the banks from laundering money it's bad that it constrains the banks from being more agile yeah yeah now in the capitalist market economies we live in we have a mechanism for that it's called bankruptcy Yeah, yeah and if you have a business that goes too far out of whack and people aren't giving you the financial feedback sooner or later you go out of business unfortunately the hangover from the 2007-2008 financial crisis um, 
plus our own pandemic predicament at the moment, capitalism isn't quite weeding out the those you know lesser ran businesses than they will work yep. than it would be, and it is difficult. You know, I mean, banks is a classic example. Banks find it incredibly difficult to move over to an agile style working. Um, to my mind, you know, some of them will not make it. Mm. They've all they've all got to try. There's, there isn't a CEO of any bank who can stand up in front of his board and say, I'm not going to spend all this money on agile coaches and agile this and agile that because we probably won't succeed in it. And therefore, I'm going to save your money and I will have managed decline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could be a valid strategy. Yeah. Nobody's taken it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They all know that these nimble fintechs, my, my favorite is Revolut and Starling. I, I use both of them. Fantastic. You know, they, they outcompete the legacy banks, but the legacy banks have got to try and compete with them. The legacy banks have got to try and get agile. But in so many ways, those banks are running against their own cultures, their own history, their own past. And as much as they use the word digital, they don't get it. Yeah. yeah. And that's really interesting because I hear very often that change has to come from the top. It's about mindset, the mindset of the leaders has to change and then fundamentally. And listening to it, I'm just wondering, well, do we need something a bit more revolutionary? I mean, you know, the thing about the pandemic, he introduced a very quick stimulus for change. And it was very, um, it, it wasn't easy to ignore. You know, it was the classic burning platform. Yeah. Do, do, yeah. do you think fundamentally for the organiser, the large organisation, they just need a damn good stimulus that's going to say, stop all the nonsense, change the system, and they just do it? It's a nice idea. <laughs> yeah. The problem is faced with a really difficult situation, with a real threat, there's also the tendency to stick one's head in the sand and go, ah, la, 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 which yeah. I must admit, I, I yeah I, I listen to the radio news an awful lot less than I did a few months ago. Agreed. Yeah, and yeah, ever since that morning, two thousand and six, I've been listening to less and less of the radio news, and sometimes I just can't take it. And um, I said at the moment, I've kind of reached this point where I know I can't predict the future. There's almost no point in planning for the future. Um, so I think yeah the the amazing stimulus to change might get people to, like the high-risk strategy might get people to change. Yeah. It might also just bring up the defensive barriers all yeah. the more. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you've got to ask yourself, do I feel lucky? Mm. <laughs> you know, it's all carrot and stick. And, you know, honestly, if, if we were to manufacture as agile coaches, agile guides, agile supporters, if we were to manufacture a, a semi-artificial crisis to kick everyone's behind and make them go agile, would we be worthy of honesty and would we be trustworthy? Uh, yeah. We'd be betraying our own principles, wouldn't we? We would. We would. Well... Let's look at something. We've got a little bit more time. Something completely different. I, 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 I was wondering, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think this, the system and the people, I'm still a believer in people. You've got to get the people. Mm. But, um, you're, you're, all, you're also writing another book. Yes. Um, a book about Agile and OKRs. Which yes. Is so popular, OKRs. It's like, there was no OKRs and now everybody's using OKRs. <laughs> 
Are they using them well, Alan? I suspect not, because a couple of days ago, somebody who's mailing this, I didn't even know I was on, emailed me their their ebook of how to use OKRs. And there were two things, two or three things in that I really did not like. Uh, the, in, the, the suggestion in there that OKRs would help managers get more effort out of people, more unpaid time out of people. And the suggestion that um, you could thread your OKRs between your business as usual. Um, I, so let, let's start. If, if you were to put the clock back, you know, a couple of years, yeah. I'd never encountered OKRs. I'd read about them. I'd seen them. I'd heard about them. If I'm being truly honest, I was quite skeptical. Right. I saw them as a reincarnation of management by objective. Yeah. With the added twist that they're very numerically focused. Yeah. And um, I, I would claim credit. I'll be a little bit egotistical here. I claim credit as the man who introduced the software community to Goodhart's law. Charles Goodhart was a professor at the London School of Economics. He's still alive. Um, and in the early 80s, he coined a law which said um, any, statistical, uh, any statistical regularity used as a control mechanism will lose its statistical um, um, credibility. It will change its behavior. He was an economist, my second subject, and he was talking specifically about inflation and the way Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were pursuing inflation targets. But you see this in software development. The obvious example is story points and velocity. You know, you're sitting there and the manager says, well, let's see if we can get an extra 20 points this sprint. (laughs) And you must have seen teams where their velocity chart is just going up and up and up all the time. All you've done is induced inflation <laughs> and the estimates are getting bigger. The velocity scores are getting bigger. The amount of stuff coming out the door is the same as ever was. Exactly. <laughs> so um, when you start measuring things, you, you've got this double-edged sword. It's really powerful and it's a great source of information, but you wield it in the wrong way and you, you, you cut off your legs. Exactly. So I saw this and I saw this of, of OKRs. And then I, I was working with a company. I was coaching with a, a large financial institution who will remain nameless. Uh-huh. And uh, they just announced they're going to introduce OKRs. Uh-huh. And it's like, ah. And um, it was a bit like that Dilbert cartoon, you know, where the, uh, the manager calls Dilbert in and says, um, I want you all to work, do agile programming. And Dilbert says, oh, but we need training for agile programming. And the manager says, that was your training. <laughs> I'm saying that one, yeah. yeah it, it, it felt a bit like that. You know, so I immediately rushed out and bought, you know, the, 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 the book, Measure What Matters, which is, yeah. is the, you know, as it were, the official OKR book. And I, I devoured it. And I started reading blogs and things. And I started working with them with the teams. Oof. And you know what? Despite my skepticism, they worked. Right. And what? I started to interpret them as test-driven management. Ah. Here's what we want to do. And here's some things we're going to measure ourselves by. Right. You know, maybe our key results, the acceptance criteria. We're going to do this and we're going to do that. And every three months, there's a nice time box there. Every three months, we are going to sit down and review where we got to and set them again. And... 
I was fortunate enough, although I was in this large financial institution, the, the, the team I spent most of my time with were quite independent of other teams. And we got to set our own. And that was, that was one good move. So I think OKRs, instead of being top down, they need to be bottom up. We need, we need to have leaders who, who tell a good story, who paint a picture, who point us in the right direction. And then they need to say to their workers, you tell me how you can get us there, how you can move us towards it. And we want the OKRs to trickle up, not trickle down. The second thing we realized as we worked with them was the backlog useless. <laughs> and I, I, I remember over coffee one day, there was another coach working with another team and we had this discussion. And she was going to say to her team, right, what's the backlog we're going to address? Let's craft OKRs around those backlog themes. And I said, no, the approach I'm going to take is forget the backlog. Yeah. Let's decide what's important. Yeah. When we go into our sprint meetings during the three months, we are going to say, what do we need to do to move forward on that key result, that objective? If we've got something in the backlog, great. We've got one that we've prepared earlier, bring it on. But if what we need to do is not in the backlog, that's what we're going to do. We got to the end of the three months, and I, I, I vividly remember having a coffee with her and talking this over, and she concluded she wanted to work like me. <laughs> I concluded my way worked, and hers didn't. So we did an experiment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, but reading some other people, I think this is going to be controversial. Right. And I think, you know, over the years, the backlog has moved from being a, a wonderful idea to being a bottomless pit of rubbish and promises we're never going to keep. And the idea, I don't think I've ever seen a team burn the backlog down. Yeah, yeah. You're not done because you did everything in the backlog. Because this is another tenant of digital working in that change requests are good. Yeah. When people use your thing, they want more. Yeah, yeah. When you go into a supermarket, so we're back in lockdown. If you go into a supermarket and they're sold out toilet roll, this is bad news. Yeah. It's bad news for you. You don't have the toilet roll. It's bad news for the supermarket. They've lost a sale. Yeah, yeah. The same is true in technology. And this is where digital comes in. In the, we, If people say, we want this and it's valuable, why aren't you going to build it for them? Yeah, yeah. The, the real question is, of the 20 things I've been asked for, of the 20 things I could stock in my supermarket, what are the right things to stock? Which things have sufficient profit and which things align with the purpose of this store. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those stores where it's not very clear what they sell. Tiger, Tiger of Copenhagen's one like that for me. What the hell do they sell? I know my kids and my wife love it, but I, I do not understand that store. <laughs> Most stores, you know, Starbucks is very clear on what Starbucks sells and you go yeah. into Starbucks. I do not go into Starbucks for wine. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you, you, you get back, you get a conversation about purpose and we, what we're doing here and all of that. It's good stuff. Yeah. Um, but um, you want people to be asking more of the things you specialize in. Yeah. And so change requests and ideas are good. And under OKRs, you can do that. You're saying, what is our goal? How do we move towards it? Not, what's this list of 50 things people have told us they want and somehow think because we wrote them as a user story and put them in the backlog, they might get them one day. Yeah. yeah. And I think because OKRs have a time box, a three-month time box built into them, you're, you're bringing yourself back to this. And because OKRs are trying to be measurable, 
Tom Gilb should love me for this. They can be measured and you can measure your progress against them. Yeah. But what I don't want to see you doing, which I think other people's advice, is trying to thread OKRs between other stuff. As far as I'm concerned, if you're doing OKRs, they are the reason you exist. Nothing else matters. Don't get out of bed in the morning. If you have to do business as usual work, I quite understand, but we need to find some way of incorporating that, that within the OKR structure. Yeah. And we need to also, and this is a perennial, uh, hang on, my wife wants to come in and ask me. Pause recording. Okay, fine here. <laughs> okay, we, we can re restart that. Where was it? Um, so one of life's perennial problems is when do we do what we were planning to do and when do we go off piste? Yeah, yeah. When do we say there's a fire burning over there and we're going to let it burn because it's not important enough for us? And when do we put it out? Yeah, yeah. And firefighting is important, but if all you ever do is firefight, you yeah. will only ever be a firefighter. Yeah. Which is fine. It's a respected profession, but not everyone can or should be a firefighter. I speak as a man who has a, a fire brigade in the UK as a client. <laughs> <laughs> the IT department don't fight fires. Exactly. Well, they, 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 not literal fires. Um, so you have to work out how this fits in with your OKRs. Um, and OKRs contain lots of traps. But actually, because I've seen them work, and I, I think the idea of OKRs can fit in with the old, my continuous digital, my no project agenda. I can fit in with no estimates. And it can fit in with a lot of other good stuff. I've seen them work and I see great potential for more stuff. I think as, as agilisters, we need to, if you like, create our own version of agile OKRs as opposed to OKRs which may appear elsewhere, which may just be a reinvention of management by objective and some big boss saying something and it trickling down. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, so please buy the book now. It's on Lean Pub. You can buy it before it's finished. Uh, five dollars ninety-nine. Uh, I think Lean Pub only works in dollars. Um, I can't get around the batch process of copy editing. Uh, I'm really dyslexic, so all my books are riddled full of very funny, unintended jokes. <laughs> uh, I have a great copy editor. I'll pay him to do his best to fix it up. <laughs> so in two or three months, you should be able to buy a printed version on Amazon. Really? Um, yeah. But buy, buy it now, and you get the updates for free. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll, we'll put the, the link in. Uh, Alan, we're out of time. In fact, uh, we're over time, but your the run through of OKR was just too irresistible to, to stop you mid-flow. Um, thank you so much for spending uh, your time with us today. It's been fascinating. Uh, I love your insight. Uh, always really interesting based on experience, sometimes against the flow as well of other people's opinion, which I think is also nice to hear. Everybody's yeah, actually, I have a big mouth from Liverpool. I'm not scared to call out the opposite. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm a casual voice from London, so I think we're getting on well. Alan, thank you so much for your time. Um, it is slightly, it's just a few days before Christmas, so have a fabulous Christmas time with your family, as I will, and to all the viewers and listeners of Virginia's by Nature, I hope you have a fabulous Christmas. Hopefully, this will be out just before, but we might save it for the new year. Who knows? Thank you so much. Look after yourself, Alan. Thank you very much, Ian. Bye. Cheers.